she has to read that. When they told me that somebody can read the text for me and I don't have to read it, I got so excited because I hate reading Bible names because I still to this day, no matter how many times you read them, still can't read them and still can't pronounce any of the names. I don't know if I'm the only one, but it makes me happy I'm not the only one. Um, I love this story. I love, love, love this story because it shows the humanity and the weakness of some of the most amazing characters in the Bible. Some of the most amazing humans that ever lived. Who knows what Elijah did right before this text in the chapters right before? Who remembers the story? Huh? Slaughter the prophets, but what led to the people rising up and slaughtering the prophets? Yeah. Yeah, he had a face off, or like Mark said, a fire. I love the idea that this guy, Elijah, says, you know what? Let's have a face off. You pray to your God, I'm going to pray to my God. Let's see who can burn each other's altars. He drains his with water. He's like, you know, this is not enough water. Let's get more water. Floods his altar. It gets destroyed. Completely gone. Obliterated. He witnesses a miracle. It gets everybody so excited that they go and slaughter prophets and tear down idols. And right after that, witnessing a miracle, what is the next thing the Bible tells us? He gets scared. Right after a miracle, something miraculous and wonderful and amazing, he gets scared because of Jezebel. And so he runs away. Which shows us that it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be worried. And that's kind of where my topic is going to be about today. Um, I, when I was offered the opportunity to preach and uh, I was talking with a person, and this topic kind of came up. So some of you, if you went to Bible school camp, this will be somewhat of repetition for some of you. Uh, those of you who've been in Bible school for a long time, some of this will also be somewhat of a repetition, but repetition never hurt anybody. So the topic's going to have to do with mental health. Um, because mental health is really prevalent in modern day society. Whether it's on social media, whether it's actually in real life, especially those of you who plan going to college, you're going to encounter a lot of it. You're already seeing a lot of it in high schools. Some of you might actually be struggling with your own mental health. And it's not very often we hear, well, how do you deal with it, right? How do you approach it? How do you talk about it? In this story, though we don't see the word mental health, we don't see the word depression, we do see symptoms of Elijah's mental health and depression and problems that he struggled with. And, and we'll kind of break that down. But first, th this is my goal. I want to make sure that you guys leave today knowing it's okay to be broken. It's okay to be hurting. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean everything is going to be happy. Okay? The Bible doesn't promise us happiness. There's joy. And I would make an argument that joy and happiness are different things, but society tells us chase happiness. We need to chase hope that's in Jesus, not chase happiness. That's why a lot of people are so miserable is because they're chasing happiness. They're not chasing hope in Jesus. I also want us to know that 
most of what people would fall under mental health is not necessarily a sin. And I preface it not necessarily because there are times and issues when it can be, but majority of the time it is not. It's a condition of being human. It's a condition of being human. And we see that with Elijah, and we see that with other biblical characters, which we'll get into. But first, I want us to understand this. If Elijah suffered, we can suffer, but we're also not alone. We're not alone in our mental health struggles. So I want to read a few statistics. One in five U.S. adults experiences mental health issues each year. One in 20 U.S. adults experience serious mental health issues. Those are like, uh, you need like extreme, extreme help. You probably need to go see a doctor. Why am I bringing up adults? Here's why. One in six youth experience a mental health issue. And here's where it gets interesting. 50% of all lifetime mental health problems starts around the age of 14. And around 75% of them start around the age of 24. You guys are at the age where how you form yourself, how you choose to identify yourself, and I'm gonna use a lot of modern language that you will hear in high schools and in college campuses. That way we can be like, oh wait, I can recognize this, because a lot of the modern language we hear in, in, in high school and in college campuses isn't necessarily in the Bible, but the ideas are in the Bible, just we language changes and the way we name things changes. Because after all, the Bible's a really old book. But it's still very, 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 very applicable. You guys are at the age where everything is forming. Who you are. Some of you are in college. Raise your hand if you're in college. How many of you are still 100% sure you chose the right major? How many of you are questioning whether or not this is the right decision that I made? Because that's probably going to define you for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, I went to college to be a nurse, to be an engineer, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, I, I don't know, whatever it is you're into, right? So you guys are at the age where things are forming. How you become formed is going to play an impact on how you live later on as an adult. How you choose to relate to God now is going to have an impact when you're an adult. How you choose to build your relationships with your friends or the friends that you choose now will affect your adulthood life later. You guys are actually arguably at the most important time of a person's life. Okay? So how you guys take care of yourselves matters. How you approach life matters. What decisions you make matters. Two of the most common things when people think about mental health is depression and anxiety. So let's give us a few statistics on depression and anxiety. One in 18s have or struggled with depression. So let's count off. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And if we keep going, statistically, we have what? Five, six, seven, eight people in this room alone? Statistically. Now depression isn't just sadness, but we're not gonna define depression. This is for mental health, but it, it, it's not just sadness, it's much more that and it's much more complicated and there's a lot of hope for it. And a way out of it is by hope, not happiness. There's a correlation between social media appearance and growth of depression and suicide, primarily in teen girls more than teen boys, but nonetheless still there. 15% of people with major depressive disorder commit suicide. 
So out of our every eight, 15 statistically commit suicide. So you see that you're not alone. Anxiety, roughly 31% of teens, 13 to 18 years of age, suffer or had suffered from anxiety. Anxiety can lead to other serious issues and problems. Anxiety, anxiety is kind of like a gateway to mental health issues. Once you have one, it's very easy to get another. Roughly 40 million adults in the U.S. suffer from anxiety. Did you guys know the Bible has a lot to say about anxiety, depression, and how to deal with it, how to go about it? Notice in the story of Elijah, not once did God say, you're a sinner. Elijah literally said, hey, God, kill me. Who else in the Bible said, hey, God, kill me? I wish I could die. Job. How many of you read the book of Job? How many times has he mentioned the idea of it's better to die than to be born? We call that suicidal ideation today. That's a modern language. Right? So here's the, here's the issue that you guys are going to see real quick. A lot of times when we're using language today, it doesn't exist in the Bible, but the idea does. In that story, whether it's Elijah or whether it's Job, not once did God say, hey, you're wrong for thinking this way. God meets the broken person in their brokenness and addresses the root problem. He didn't condemn them, but he provided healing and peace and a solution and a way out. I bring this up because you will encounter someone who is struggling with, a, with some sort of mental health issue. How you behave yourself, what jokes you are making regarding about it can be the difference between someone being saved by Jesus or someone going away from Jesus. We make a lot of jokes. Some, the Bible tells us, be careful about what jokes you're making, especially if they're jokes about pain and hurt and suffering that people are experiencing in life. So you're not alone. You're not alone. Notice what Elijah did. He got scared. What's the first thing he did in the story? He left his servant and ran away. Did you guys catch the part in the, when Angela was reading where Elijah left his servant, his companion, his friend, the person was there to help him. He leaves him and goes away. And when he's away, he starts getting thoughts of why am I alive? I should, it's rather, I'd rather die. The Bible says the devil is like a roar, uh, like a prowling what? Lion. How do lions hunt? Do they go for the, for the crowd and they go like, oh, there's, there, there's a pack of zebras or whatever you call the collection of zebras. Let me go for the one right in the middle. He's going to jump over all the zebras. Or does he go for the one that's at the very behind alone? The lion always goes for the one that is alone. Mental health, problems, depression, anxiety, loneliness, whatever, wants you to be alone. When you are alone, it is easier to devour you, to consume you. Don't allow that to happen. If you're struggling, remember you're not alone and look at the people here whether it's pastors or whoever, or people here. 
a friend, somebody to pray with. Don't be alone. Don't allow depression, anxiety, etc., to let you to be alone because that's what it wants you to be. So I've been using the word mental health a lot. I know there's a lot of definitions, but just so that we're on the same page, let's quickly define what it is and kind of what it looks like. Mental health is the emotional, psychological, social, and spiritual well-being of a person that affects how one thinks, feels, and acts. It also helps to determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make choices. I'll read it one more time so that we're all together. Mental health is an emotional, psychological, social, and spiritual well-being of a person that affects how one thinks, feels, and acts. It also helps to determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make choices. Does the Bible tell us how we should relate to each other? Does the Bible tell us how we should approach making life-challenging decisions? Does the Bible tell us how to deal with stress and how to approach it? Yes, yes it does. Yes it does. Now I kept saying that mental health's not in the Bible, the actual word. So what words, when you're reading the Bible, should you pay attention to? Right, because we should have a guiding compass somehow. How many of you, anxieties in the Bible, do not be anxious about anything? In Philippines, right? Let's see. Fears in the Bible. Anguish or agony. How many times ever read the Psalms and he's saying, my soul is in agony. I am in anguish. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he was overcome with anguish. To the point to where his blood, that his sweat was like blood. Right? Despair. Is that word in the Bible? Yes, it is. Sorrow. I am discouraged, weary, downcast, distressed. And the, and the Psalms over and over again, my soul cries out day and night. So I'm crying every single moment of the day. These words are in the Bible. We can group that into the idea of mental health, of pain that people are experiencing. So what are some other things other than anxiety and depression that we can categorize under mental health? Because here's the distinction I, I want to make. There are psychiatric problems, say multi-personal personality disorder, attachment issues, schizophrenia, whatever. Then we have mental health problems, slightly different, not exactly psychiatric. There's some overlap, but not exactly the same. One, definitely, you should go see a doctor, plus Jesus. One Jesus can solve. I mean, Jesus can solve whichever, but sometimes Jesus says, go see a doctor. So anxiety, depression, we got those two. A lot of people within the Slavic culture, once they hit a specific age, struggle with loneliness and singleness, and it becomes an all-consuming part of their mental, psychological problems that they're facing, singleness and loneliness. Uh, anger, guilt, fear, self-esteem or feeling inferior, grief and addictions. Those are some of the things that would fall under the category 
of mental health that can consume us and lead us astray, cause us to go down a dark path of brokenness and sorrow. Right? Let's, for example, bring the idea of singleness and loneliness. Did you guys know the Bible says some of you are gifted a gift of singleness and some of you were made specifically to be single? Now, majority of you people, that's not the case. That's not the case. But even Jesus talks about it. Did you guys know that, that Jesus even mentions that? But here's the thing. We live in a culture where we have a lot of cultural pressure to get married. We define whether or not you're a man or a woman based on whether or not you are married. You're not man enough till you're married. Once you're married, you're not a man enough till you have kids. And you're not man enough compared to the guy who has 14 kids while you have one kid. It's almost like a competition. It's almost like we took capitalism, added it to marriage, and said, hey, who can have the most and the best and the biggest and the brightest, whatever. And that leads to cultural problems of I, I, I'm no longer good enough because I'm still single and I'm 25. But guess what? The Bible says who cares? That's not the primary problem in your life. That shouldn't be a problem in your life. With Jesus, you, you, you have Jesus. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm pro-marriage, and I hope all of you get married. Because life is much happier, and it is more bliss when you're married than when, when you're single. But there's other struggles and other problems of mental health issues that arise within marriage. Because guess this. Did you guys know that you need Jesus in every aspect of your life? Not just your church life. You need Jesus in your, if you're going to get married, in marriage. You need Jesus in your work. You need Jesus in your school life. You need Jesus in your personal life. You need Jesus in your friendship life. Every aspect of your life, you need Jesus. And when we ignore Jesus in every aspect of our life, we're going to create issues for ourselves. And once we get one issue, it's a spiraling snowball that can become an avalanche real quick. But... Let's keep going, because the Bible has a lot more to say. I want to bring this verse. How many of you notice, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, mind, soul, strength. Three different parts, four, four. Four ways of loving God. With your heart, with your mind, with your soul, with your strength. A lot of times why we can't deal with mental health is, A, we don't learn to love God with all four. Or, B, we're ignoring components of ourselves whether it's our emotional self, psychological self, or our social self. This is the only big word I'm going to use today. Biopsychosocial. Who wants to guess what it is? It's, it, it's an abbreviation of biological, psychological, social. In, in modern day, whatever thinking, psych, psychology, whatever you want to use, they're saying that some issues are biological. So meaning, say depression, right? Sometimes it is a chemical disbalance in your brain. Sometimes it would be categorized under a spiritual slash psychological problem where you need to adjust your thinking, how you approach or how you view something. And sometimes it's your social life. Your social life is your life at home, your family, your brothers, your sisters, and your friends. And this includes social media. Okay? So sometimes how you approach it matters. 
But since we're at a church, we're going to talk about how you approach mental health from a spiritual perspective. Because I think this one lacks the most and we don't hear enough about it. But before we continue, did you know Jesus invites broken people to him? He extends an invitation to the broken. Jesus came for the brokenhearted. He even says, I came for the sick. Right? The doctor didn't come to the healthy people. You come to the doctor when you're sick. Right? So Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 28, 30, come to me all who are weary. Again, that word weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my ego is light. Jesus extends an invitation. Hey, if you're weary, if your soul is heavy, come to me, learn from me, and you will find rest. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, loneliness, singleness, anger, guilt, fear, come to Jesus and accept his invitation. Learn from Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares. What are we doing with moments of anxiety and stress and and, and feelings of our brokenness that we experience, are we casting them on Jesus because he cares? Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Pay attention to the language. Brokenhearted. Is your heart broken? Is your soul broken? God meets the brokenhearted in their pain. In the midst of your pain and agony that you experience in life, God is there. I'm going to read, give you a name, give you a few verses. We're not going to go through each of these stories because it's going to take way too long and we don't have that much time. But these are people and characters in the Bible. These are the people who lived, who had an extremely good life with God. But yet, despite being godly and righteous, still struggled with moments of what we today would call mental health. Moments of sorrow, moments of brokenheartedness, moments of weary, moments of where they just wanted to give up and just be done. Job, we all know the story of Job. Moses in Numbers 11, through, in Numbers 11 10 to 15. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.8 talks about his overwhelming anxiety and worry about the state of the church. Oh, and for Moses, it was the occasional God, like, why would you even give me these people? I am done with these people. I can't do this anymore. I quit. Just take me away. Psalms, whether it's David or any other writer, all through the Psalms you find words, weariness, sorrow, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that, that we read. The Psalms are full of it. Jeremiah was nicknamed the weeping prophet. What is weeping? This man had trust issues with his own self. He didn't believe in himself. He struggled with the fact and, and the identity that God gave him to be a prophet. He didn't feel like he was good enough. He was nicknamed the weeping prophet. We have the story of Jonah where Jonah is like, God, kill me. I don't want to see the Ninevites live. You have Hannah in 1 Samuel 1.10. You guys remember the story of Hannah? What was she depressed about? 
Why, why did she come to the temple and cry and pray so hard each day to the point to where the prophet came up to her and said, are you drunk? Imagine to cry in a church to the point to where somebody says, are you okay? Do you need help? We read the story of Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 1 to 18. And what about the story of Naomi? So overwhelmed by grief that she changes her name. By the way, I know that the book of Ruth is always presented like a girl book. You guys, dudes, this is for you. Read the book of Ruth. It's not just a girl book. It is a profoundly amazing book. But Naomi, overcome with so much grief, that she changes her name to represent her grieving status, changes her whole identity of the woman who is grieving. So these are examples that we have in the Bible. And I wish we could like go into each of their stories and see how each one dealt with it and how God came and met every single one of those people in their journey, in their life. Like for Naomi, she had Ruth. That's what makes it amazing. Because Naomi's like, no, Ruth, go away. I don't want you anymore. Just, just, just go. She's like, no, I'm, I'm going to stick with you. I don't care. I'm going to be with you. You need a person right now. You, I, I also lost my dude. I know you lost your sons, but I also lost my husband. Right? So God meets every one of these people and provides a solution in their way out. Let's look at two examples of what happened. Well, we already talked about Naomi. But I want to bring up a few examples of things that can happen when we don't deal with our brokenness, when we don't deal with anger, guilt, fear, when we don't deal with our depression, when we don't deal with our anxiety, and when we ignore this and we over-spiritualize it, or we say Christians can't have it and we completely ignore it, what can happen? We already brought up Naomi. Naomi changes her name. But notice in the story of Ruth, when she came back to her home city, people were like, is that Naomi? Question mark. Her grief, not only she changed her name, but her grieving physiologically changed the way that she is. Most people argue that the reason people struggled with why is that Naomi is because your body inherits your trauma. I don't know if you guys knew this, but trauma is embodied. Your body carries it. It changes you. Look at our grandmas and grandpas. Why are so many people so fragile? In comparison to other people their age in other countries. Because our grandparents went through severe trauma and persecution. They went through a lot. We say, oh, that's normal aging. It's not normal aging. That's called embodied trauma. That's pain that they dealt with through the persecution that they experienced during the Soviet Union. And yet, they stayed strong in their faith. The reason I bring this up is we, we can learn so much from our grandmas and grandpas if we just would sit down and listen to their stories. So my challenge is this. Go listen to their stories. Ask them, hey, how did you survive persecution? Tell me your story. I don't know if you guys ever thought about that. But we know that mental health is a brain problem, right? It has to do with your emotions. Where do your emotions come? From your brain. 
Here's a fun fact. Did you guys know that your brain's connected to your body 100% of the time? And that your emotions, like how many of you like have kids and the kid, and the kid's like, oh, I have bellyache, bellyache, bellyache. The problem is the kid's like having severe anxiety and so they're getting like this weird feeling in their stomach. Or like when you fall in love with somebody and you're like, oh, I got butterflies when I see them. That's your emotion physically manifesting on your body. That's why the Bible tells us Pay attention to your emotions. And that's what Paul writes, hey, cast your anxieties on Jesus. Do not worry about anything, but focus on this. In prayer, focus on thanksgiving, focus on prayer, focus on joy, focus on other aspects of your life. The fruit of the spirit, what is that? Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness. There's emotions. The Bible tells us, pay attention to your emotions. So th this is what I'm trying to bring you guys into. The Bible is very, 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 very relevant. It got everything right. And modern day psychology and science and everything is only catching up to the truths that are in the Bible. So, Naomi. Grief, grief changes her. What about Judas in Matthew? You guys all remember Judas? What did he do? What is he famous for? Okay. Betraying Jesus. What happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus? What happened before he hung himself? In between betraying Jesus... Judas hanging himself. The Bible says something happened to Judas. What was it that happened to Judas? He felt remorse. Another word for remorse is guilt. He was so overcome with guilt and shame, remorse, that it consumed him. It consumed him. We can all agree Jesus could have forgave Judas. But yet Judas was so consumed with this pain that instead of coming to Jesus, he kills himself. Are you allowing your weariness, your brokenness, your anxiety, your depression, etc., to consume you? Are you ignoring it? Please don't ignore it. There is a way out, and Jesus provides a way out. How many of you know Genesis 1? Raise your hand. How many of you, it's my favorite book in the Bible. Gen Genesis 1 through 11 is one of my favorite parts because it's some of the most beautiful Revelation of who God is in all of scripture. It talks about the wonderfulness and beautifulness of God. Especially Genesis chapter 1. So, raise your hand if you have, if you heard sermons on Genesis 1, raise your hand. What are the sermons about? I, I need somebody to yell out. What are they about? What are they compared to all the time? Creation and what specifically? Huh? Covenant, what else? 
the, the, the word I'm looking for is evolution, because almost all the time in churches, it's always creation versus evolution. Let's go to Genesis 1. That's cool. That's great. That has its place in the church. We're going to go away from this. If you're a Bible school camp, you know slightly where I'm going with it. But to preface this, Revelations tells us there is no sea in the new, he uh, in the new heaven and earth. Look it up. Google it. Revelation tells us that in the new heaven and earth, there is no sea. All right, let's go to Genesis 1 together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was what? Formless. Some translations say empty. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of the God was hovering over the waters. What's the correlation between Revelation saying there's no seas and Genesis 1? We read the Bible from a modern perspective. Now, if you were to read this verse as the people of Israel to whom Moses is writing, you would understand this differently. To you, the sea and emptiness and deserts are a place of darkness, it's a place where you die. It's a place of danger, it's a place of chaos. It's a place of disorder. In the ancient Near Eastern context, if we're gonna read this culturally appropriate to how it would have been understood, chaos sees it's a place where there's destruction. How many of you like watched movies and like you have the ship being tossed all around by the waves and crashing you down or even the story of the Sea of Galilee where the sea and the disciples were, were trying to get the water out of, out, out of the boat and they were freaking out and they're like, Jesus, wake up, like wake up, we're sinking, we're dying because the sea was tossing them around. So the sea was a dangerous place. It was a place of chaos. Now notice this, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of darkness, because what's the next verse? Right, in the midst of darkness, of all of that, God is hovering, the spirit of God is hovering over the earth. In the midst of sorrow and brokenness, in the midst of chaos, God is present. Are you looking for God? So the next verse, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he separated light from darkness. If we keep going, I'm not gonna, we're not going to read the whole chapter because of time. What happens on day two? God then separates water and sky. What does he do on day three? He separates more and creates land. So the first three days, out of chaos, he's separating the darkness away. And he says, and it was the first day, and it was good. It was the second day, and it was good and it was the third day and it was good so when you're reading this you're seeing that the god that you're worshiping is creating out of darkness goodness beauty and life if we keep going on verse four day four five and six each correlate to day one two and three it's called poetic symmetry so on day one, it was light. On day four, God fills that light by creating the stars and the moon and the sun to govern night and day that he previously separated. And he said that it was good. 
On day two, he made the sky and the water. On day five, he made the fish and the birds to fill what he separated. And it was good. On day six, I mean day three and six, he makes land. And on day six, he fills the land with animals and mankind made in the image of God. So he separated and created goodness out of chaos. And then out of that, he began to fill that which he separated, that which he called good, he filled it with more good. So what does that tell us about God and God's relation to us? That God wants goodness for us. We say God is good and all the time. Did you know that God is good and he creates goodness? And he creates beauty out of chaos and darkness. So do you guys see how Genesis 1 is much more? It's so, like, it's so cool. It's so much more than just day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, like, systematic thing. It tells us who God is. It's a God who is a good, good God that loves his creation. Who creates and wants to do good. Now, if we take this into our lives, if our lives are messy and chaotic, And if we're experiencing mental health problems, right, darkness, God is present. Are we looking for God or are we looking for some other solution? Are we looking for God as a way out and finding Jesus and hope out of our depression? Or are we seeking some kind of happiness and some materialistic thing that's going to go away? You're single, so you're trying to find a wife or a husband to make you happy. Guess what? You'll have a miserable marriage if you do. Because you can't expect your spouse to fulfill the role Jesus does. Because guess what? No matter how many times I try, I ain't Jesus. And my wife will point that out real quick. She can tell you, oh, Alex has problems. Here's his list of his laundry of problems. Right? We don't, you, you seek, you find Jesus where you find hope. So what God wants to do, if we, if that's what you're saying, come to me who are weary and broken and heavy laden. Let me separate the bad, the darkness. Let me separate it away and start creating goodness. And let me fill you with goodness. We have this Holy Spirit. Amen. And the Holy Spirit is called what? A counselor. Guidance, somebody to guide and to counsel us in our life. So Jesus cares about the brokenhearted. God cares about the brokenhearted. So what are some practical things that we can do? What are some practical things that we can do? One, if you're not struggling with any sort of mental health and you're in a good healthy spot. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. My question to you is, are you a safe person for other people to come to? Are you somebody to whom people can come to and find prayer? Or are they going to find condemnation? God didn't condemn Elijah for saying, I want to kill myself. God didn't condemn Job, but he met them. Are you somebody with whom somebody can come to and say, hey, I need prayer? So the first thing we need to do 
is come to Jesus and accept Jesus' invitation. The first step is to come to Jesus and accept Jesus' invitation. The second thing is prayer, but specifically prayer in the form of lamenting. For those of you who are taking notes, Google, write the word lamenting, because a lot of the psalms are psalms of lament. Bring your request known to God. Jesus, when he's talking about the Lord's prayer, he tells you, come to God. God already knows, but he wants you to come to him. Lay your burdens to God. When was the last time you got on your knees and you cried and let your soul out and let God know everything? The, the ugly, the good, the bad in its raw, honest self. The Psalms teach us that we need to turn to God, cry out to God, ask God for help, and then trust God in hope. If you don't know where to start with prayer, start with reading the Psalms. If you can't find words to pray, read the Psalms and say, God, this is my prayer to you, and pray the Psalm. It's a starting point. For some of us, based on our issues that we're struggling with, some of us might need to practice fasting. Fasting from our triggers, fasting from our friends. Maybe social media is the reason you're feeling anxious and depressed and et cetera, so fast from social media. Rethink your use of social media. Some of us need to practice fasting. Next, some of us need to practice thanksgiving and gratitude. In Philippines 4, it says, do not worry about anything, but in prayer and but in prayer, bring everything to God. It mentions thanksgiving and gratitude. With thanksgiving and gratitude. All of the Psalms, when David, majority of the Psalms, when they cry out and say, God, my life is miserable, everything sucks, everybody wants to kill me, my soul is weary, I can't take this anymore. But you know what, God? Still thank you for being a good God. It said that David was a man after God's own heart. And God is a God that creates beauty and fills goodness on this earth. Out of chaos, he makes goodness and beauty. Are we being grateful for that which we have? Are we practicing thanksgiving? And again, I'm using the word practicing because it's something you need to learn to do. Because Jesus says, come and learn from me. Some of us need to practice the Sabbath. Some of us are too overwhelmed and consumed by everything. Jesus says in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or in Mark 6, 31, my favorite part, Jesus tells his disciples, yo, go take a nap. Paraphrase my translation. He encourages them to go and rest. So some of us need to stop, rest, and the Sabbath isn't just coming to church and resting. It's also playing, relaxing, having fellowship. When was the last time you let everything go, let all of your worries, and you were just present with your friends, present in church for worship, not consumed by anything? So basically I'm telling you this, go take a nap. Jesus encourages naps. If you learned anything today, Jesus says take a nap. I mean, think about it. Jesus was napping in the middle of a storm, and we're supposed to be like Jesus. So, nap in storms. 
Don't take that too literally. Seven, changing the mind, heart, and soul through grounding ourselves in truth and reality in the kingdom of God. And this is the most important, especially those of us who are struggling with anxiety. Grounding ourselves in the realities in the kingdom of God. How do we ground ourselves in the realities of the kingdom of God? You have to pick up this book called the Bible. You ever hear of it? Surprise. In church, the answer is always the Bible or Jesus. That's always the answer to everything. As cliche as that is. But more specifically, it's not just reading your Bible. It's memorizing your Bible. It's getting to the point to where you study and memorize the Bible to where if you're overcome by something, you can start citing verses to yourselves of the truth and reality and the promises that God gives and that God tells us. When you're standing there getting coffee and you're in line and all of a sudden you get this overwhelming feeling of you just reminded of a sin that you committed that you can't get over, you need a Bible verse to say, no, I am a child of God. I am forgiven. A psalm that I quite almost a lot recite in my life is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. That thing can be a prayer. The whole psalm can be a prayer on its own. But grounding yourselves in the realities of the, of, of the kingdom of God, and you can't do that unless you know the Bible, unless it is a part of you, memorizing, reading it. The Bible has answers to our well-being and flourishing. How did Moses deal with the problems that he had? How did Paul, how did Elijah? The Bible tells you, but if we're not reading, if we're not studying, if we're not memorizing, we're not going to learn the practical applications that are in the Bible. Like, I know you always hear, read your Bible, but seriously, it is life transforming when you, and it's not just reading. Don't just read, memorize and study, read slowly. Pay attention to the language. Hopefully today I gave you a few words to look at for noticing mental health related issues like anguish, anxiety, sorrow, despair. Hopefully that will help those of you who need that help to pay attention to that language. For some of us, we need to practice simplicity. Jesus' teaching of saying, do not worry about anything, always starts in the Bible with the word, therefore, do not worry. Right before, he talks about riches. And how the chasing of riches causes worry. Essentially, be simple. Don't overcomplicate your life. Practice simplicity. And this isn't just practicing simplicity in materialistic stuff. This is also practicing simplicity in what you do. Saying no is okay. Just be respectful when you say no. Some of us are doing too much. We need to be more simple. We're being too overwhelmed by taking on too much. Some of you are carrying burdens that you shouldn't be carrying don't do God's job let God do God's job and lastly most importantly and this is the hardest thing for anyone to do myself included 
ask for help. Ask for help. I already mentioned the word biopsychosocial. Sometimes our problems with mental health or depression, anxiety, depending what we're going through, can be biological. Majority of the times, if we're talking about specifically mental health, loneliness, fear, anger, guilt, etc., it stems from a psychological, spiritual perspective. We're not grounded in the reality and the truth of the Bible, in the promises that God tells us. And lastly, our social world, our friends, and by social, again, I also mean social media. And so sometimes we just need to ask for help. In the story of Elijah that we didn't read on, God tells Elijah, hey, no, you're not alone. Because Elijah was saying, I am alone and I am only left. And God says, no, that's not the reality. The reality is this, you are not alone. And then he says, I will give you a new servant, a new person to go and walk with you so that you are not alone. So you have somebody to help you. So you see how he starts, leaves his servant, poor guy, we never hear about that guy again, and he gets a new servant at the end, and God grounds him in the reality of your perception is that you are alone, the reality is you are not alone. And the most important thing that I want to notice in the story of Elijah, was God in the earthquake? Was God in the fire? Where was God in the story of Elijah that we read? It was in the whisper of the wind. can't hear a whisper in the wind if you're too overwhelmed running around too loud. If all around you is earthquake and chaos, you need to stop, pause, listen for the whisper. Listen for the whisper. So I encourage you, ask for help if you need help. There's leaders here at youth, there's leaders at church, ask for help. It is not weak. The weak person does not ask for help. The strong person asks for help. No matter how much society or culture wants to tell you, the weak do not ask for help. It is the strong that ask for help. So, y'all, you're one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and you live in his unshakable kingdom. Every single one of you, you are one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and you live in his unshakable kingdom. Amen? Let us pray.